This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Father's Last Escape by Bruno Schultz. At that time, my father was definitely dead. He had been dying a number of times, always with some reservations that forced us to revise our attitude toward the fact of his death. The story was chosen by Nicole Krauss, the author of The History of Love, part of which was published in the magazine in 2004. Her most recent novel is Great House, which was a finalist for the 2010 National Book Award. Part of Great House, The Young Painters, was published as part of our 20 Under 40 series. Hi, Nicole. Hi. So everybody I know who's an admirer of Bruno Schultz has his or her own story about how they first encountered his work. David Grossman has written about this at length, and other people have too. Do you have a sort of Bruno Schultz origin story? Well, I remember when it was. It was June of 1999. And I think I found my way to him because there was a theater company. There is a theater company, Simon McBurney's Theater Company, Teatro de Complicité, whose productions I used to constantly go see in London. And everyone was more amazing than the last. And they did one that I couldn't see. Somehow I wasn't able to go, and it was called The Street of Crocodiles. And somehow I found out that this was an adaptation of this book by this writer, Bruno Schultz. And so I found it and started to read it. I think part of that amazement that writers describe uh, has to do with the fact that there really is nothing like entering into the world of Bruno Schultz. It is a complete world. It is so fully realized and so completely unlike any other world that another writer has created. Just the shock of what it feels like there, the different sense of reality um, is very, very memorable the first time you enter it. Do you want to talk a bit about his background and his story? Yeah, he was born in 1892 in Drohobish, a small town in Galicia. And he was the son of parents who owned what was either a dry goods shop or maybe a sort of textile, small right. textile shop. At some point, his parents died. And long after that, he began to write and to kind of resurrect them and turn them into these mythical figures. He was an incredibly shy person. Uh, most of his contact with the world was through letters. And it was in the course of writing these letters that he began what became what's called in English the Street of Crocodiles, but his title for it was The Cinnamon Shops. Mm-hmm. He published that in 1934. And a couple of years later, published a second book. And then war broke out. Being Jewish, he was moved into the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And apparently, and this is the story that everyone knows about him, that's told over and over, although people like David Grossman have found other versions of the story. We don't know how true this version is. But the story is that Schultz was taken under the protection of Felix Landau, one of the Nazis who was living in the town. And painted murals for his child's bedroom. At some point, Landau got in an argument with a fellow Nazi whose name was apparently Gunther. And Gunther also had a Jew under his protection, apparently. And Landau killed this Jew uh, after some altercation with Gunther. And in retaliation for that, apparently, so the story goes, on this Black Thursday Gunther, while other Jews were also getting shot, came up to Bruno Schultz in the street, shot him in the head, later went up to Lando and said, you killed my Jew, I killed yours. 
So the, the, the story is that he also had a completed manuscript, The Messiah. Elsewhere, I found somebody who wrote and said that you know, there was also another manuscript, a completed manuscript of short stories, and no trace of those have ever been found. For those of us who love Schultz, there's this sort of aching feeling of what was contained in those right. books. The two books that did come out, The Street of Crocodiles or The Cinnamon Shops and uh, Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass, were short stories but also kind of novels in a sense, continuous portraits of Schultz's life reimagined. And the story that you're going to read, Father's Last Escape, comes at the end of the second book and um, is mostly focused on an incident involving the father or his reincarnation. But maybe you, you would give us a little background of what came yeah. before. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you make the distinction and call the books novels, because I think they are as well. And people often refer to them as short stories. But Schultz himself called at least Cinnamon Shops an autobiographical novel. And then he apparently sort of paused and changed it to uh, genealogy of the spirit, which I think is the best possible right. definition of, of, what, of what his works are. So this father figure who's called Jacob, and Jacob was in fact Schultz's own father's name, appears throughout all of his work. And he had this shop, as we described. At some point, he became ill and had to abandon work and leave it to Schultz's mother. And what followed is basically a decade of just slowly dying, I suppose, really. Mm -hmm. But also this kind of retreat into inner life, into fantasy. At least that's how it's told in these books. And this father figure becomes really a portrait of an artist. I, I actually think of him as, as Schultz's alter ego. Mm -hmm. And these, this father, who is supposedly dying on one level, is actually constantly transforming. Right. Physically, he's, he's supposedly completely trapped and bedridden. He can't, he can't get out of bed, but uh, but other in, things happen. <laughs> but in fact, he's busy with all kinds of obscure, scientific, esoteric pursuits and he becomes a condor. He becomes this knight in shining golden armor, and he becomes a cockroach. And every time he seems to disappear into nothingness, he returns again. The book has mm -hmm. no chronology. So facts, the possibility of dying, facts can always be reverted. Mm -hmm. uh, they're mm -hmm. never stable. There's exactly. no stability. Yeah, they're never stable, yeah. yeah. So here we have, and when we finally read what's basically this last chapter, installment, of the second book, we have The Last Escape, but it's just yet another of these endless transformations or metamorphoses that he undergoes. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Nicole Krauss reading Father's Last Escape by Bruno Schultz. It happened in the late and forlorn period of complete disruption at the time of the liquidation of our business. The signboard had been removed from over our shop the shutters were halfway down, and inside the shop my mother was conducting an unauthorized trade in remnants. Adela, the servant girl, had gone to America, and it was said that the boat on which she had sailed had sunk, and that all the passengers had lost their lives. We were unable to verify this rumor, but all trace of the girl was lost, and we never heard of her again. A new age began, empty, sober, and joyless like a sheet of white paper. A new servant girl, Genya, anemic, pale and boneless, mooned about the rooms. When one patted her on the back, she wriggled, 
stretched like a snake or purred like a cat. She had a dull white complexion, and even the insides of her eyelids were white. She was so absent-minded that she sometimes made a white sauce from old letters and invoices. It was sickly and inedible. At that time, my father was definitely dead. He had been dying a number of times, always with some reservations that forced us to revise our attitude toward the fact of his death. This had its advantages. By dividing his death into installments, father had familiarized us with his demise. We became gradually indifferent to his returns, each one shorter, each one more pitiful. His features were already dispersed throughout the room in which he had lived and were sprouting in it, creating at some point strange knots of likeness that were most expressive. The wallpaper began in certain places to imitate his habitual nervous tick. The flower designs arranged themselves into the doleful elements of his smile, symmetrical as the fossilized imprint of a trilobite. For a time, we gave a wide berth to his fur coat lined with polecat skins. The fur coat breathed. The panic of small animals sewn together and biting into one another passed through it in helpless currents and lost itself in the folds of the fur. Putting one's ear against it, one could hear the melodious purring unison of the animal's sleep. In this well-tanned form, amid the faint smell of polecat, murder, and nighttime matings, my father might have lasted for many years. But he did not last. One day, Mother returned home from town with a preoccupied face. Look, Joseph, she said, what a lucky coincidence. I caught him on the stairs, jumping from step to step and she lifted a handkerchief that covered something on a plate. I recognized him at once. The resemblance was striking, although now he was a crab or a large scorpion. Mother and I exchanged looks. In spite of the metamorphosis, the resemblance was incredible. Is he alive? I asked. Of course, I can hardly hold him, Mother said. Shall I place him on the floor? She put the plate down, and leaning over him, we observed him closely. There was a hollow place between his numerous curved legs, which he was moving slightly. His uplifted pincers and feelers seemed to be listening. I tipped the plate and father moved cautiously and with a certain hesitation onto the floor. Upon touching the flat surface under him, he gave a sudden start with all of his legs while his hard arthropod joints made a clacking sound. I barred his way. He hesitated investigated the obstacle with his feelers, then lifted his pincers and turned aside. We let him run in his chosen direction where there was no furniture to give him shelter. Running in wavy jerks on his many legs, he reached the wall, and before we could stop him, ran lightly up it, not pausing anywhere. I shuddered with instinctive revulsion as I watched his progress up the wallpaper. Meanwhile, Father reached a small built-in kitchen cupboard, hung for a moment on its edge, testing the terrain with his pincers, and then crawled into it. He was discovering the apartment afresh from the new point of view of a crab. Evidently, he perceived all objects by his sense of smell, for in spite of careful checking, I could not find in him any organ of sight. He seemed to consider carefully the objects he encountered in his path, stopping and feeling them with his antennae and embracing them with his pincers, as if to test them and make their acquaintance. After a time, he left them and continued on his run, pulling his abdomen behind him, lifted slightly from the floor. 
He acted the same way with the pieces of bread and meat that we threw on the floor for him, hoping he would eat them. He gave them a perfunctory examination and ran on, not recognizing that they were edible. Watching these patient surveys of the room, one could assume that he was obstinately and indefatigably looking for something. From time to time, he ran to a corner of the kitchen, crept under a barrel of water that was leaking, and upon reaching the puddle, seemed to drink. Sometimes he disappeared for days on end. He seemed to manage perfectly well without food, but this did not seem to affect his vitality. With mixed feelings of shame and repugnance, we concealed by day our secret fear that he might visit us in bed during the night. But this never occurred, although in the daytime he would wander all over the furniture. He particularly liked to stay in the spaces between the wardrobes and the wall. We could not discount certain manifestations of reason and even a sense of humor. For instance, Father never failed to appear in the dining room during mealtimes, although his participation in them was purely symbolic. If the dining room door was by chance closed during dinner and he had been left in the next room, he scratched at the bottom of the door, running up and down along the crack until we opened it for him. In time, he learned how to insert his pincers and legs under the door, and after some elaborate maneuvers, he finally succeeded in insinuating his body through it sideways into the dining room. This seemed to give him pleasure. He would then stop under the table, lying quite still, his abdomen slightly pulsating. What the meaning of these rhythmic pulsations was, we could not imagine. They seemed obscene and malicious, but at the same time expressed a rather gross and lustful satisfaction. Our dog Nimrod would approach him slowly and without conviction, sniff at him cautiously, sneeze, and turn away indifferently, not having reached any conclusions. Meanwhile, the demoralization in our household was increasing. Genya slept all day long, her slim body bonelessly undulating with her deep breaths. We often found in the soup reels of cotton, which she had thrown in unthinkingly with the vegetables. Our shop was open nonstop, day and night. A continuous sale took place amid complicated bargainings and discussions. To crown it all, Uncle Charles came to stay. He was strangely depressed and silent. He declared with a sigh that after his recent unfortunate experiences, he had decided to change his way of life and devote himself to the study of languages. He never went out but remained locked in the most remote room, from which Genya had removed all of the carpets and curtains, as she did not approve of our visitor. There he spent his time reading old price lists. Several times he tried viciously to step on Father. Screaming with horror, we told him to stop it. Afterward, he only smiled wryly to himself, while Father, not realizing the danger he had been in, hung around and studied some spots on the floor. My father, quick and mobile as long as he was on his feet, shared with all crustaceans the characteristic that when turned on his back he became largely immobile. It was sad and pitiful to see him desperately moving all his limbs and rotating helplessly around his own axis. We could hardly force ourselves to look at the conspicuous almost shameless mechanism of his anatomy, completely exposed under the bare articulated belly. At such moments, Uncle Charles could hardly restrain himself from stamping on Father. We ran to his rescue with some object at hand, which he caught tightly with his pincers, quickly regaining his normal position. Then at once he started a lightning, zigzag run at double speed, as if wanting to obliterate the memory of his unsightly fall. 
I must force myself to report truthfully the unbelievable deed from which my memory recoils even now. To this day I cannot understand how we became the conscious perpetrators of it. The strange fatality must have been driving us to it, for fate does not evade consciousness or will, but engulfs them in its mechanism, so that we are able to admit and accept, as in a hypnotic trance, things that under normal circumstances would fill us with horror. Shaken badly, I asked my mother in despair again and again, how could you have done it? If it were Genya who had done it, but you, yourself? Mother cried, wrung her hands, and could find no answer. Had she thought that father would be better off? Had she seen in that act the only solution to a hopeless situation? Or did she do it out of inconceivable thoughtlessness and frivolity? Fate has a thousand wiles when it chooses to impose on us its incomprehensible whims. A temporary blackout, a moment of inattention or blindness, is enough to insinuate an act between the Scylla and Charybdis of decision. Afterward, with hindsight, we may endlessly ponder that act, explain our motives, try to discover our true intentions, but the act remains irrevocable. When Father was brought in on a dish, we came to our senses and understood fully what had happened. He lay large and swollen from the boiling, pale gray and jellified. We sat in silence, dumbfounded. Only Uncle Charles lifted his fork toward the dish, but at once he put it down uncertainly, looking at us askance. Mother ordered it to be taken to the sitting room. It stood there afterward on a table covered with a velvet cloth, next to the album of family photographs and a musical cigarette box. Avoided by us all, it just stood there. But my father's earthly wanderings were not yet at an end, and the next installment, the extension of the story beyond permissible limits, is the most painful of all. Why didn't he give up? Why didn't he admit that he was beaten when there was every reason to do so, and when even fate could go no farther in utterly confounding him? After several weeks of immobility in the sitting room, he somehow rallied and seemed to be slowly recovering. One morning we found the plate empty. One leg lay on the edge of the dish, and some congealed tomato sauce and aspic that bore the traces of his escape. Although boiled and shedding his legs on the way, with his remaining strength he had dragged himself somewhere to begin a homeless wandering, and we never saw him again. That was Nicole Krauss reading Bruno Schultz's story, Father's Last Escape, which was translated by Selina Vianevska. The story was collected in The Street of Crocodiles and Other Stories, published by Penguin Classics. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Nicole, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in another story, the father transforms into a cockroach. Here he transforms into a crab. There are obviously echoes here of Kafka and the metamorphosis. With, for me, the, the major difference, which is in the metamorphosis, we're inside the cockroach looking out, and here we're on the outside looking in. Why do you think Schultz keeps us hovering outside of what's going on in this piece? I think for, for me, the interesting distinction is that the metamorphosis, as Kafka writes it, is tragic. We know from the first moments that Samsa wakes up that what's going to happen is inevitable and can't be undone and can only end horribly. In the case of Schultz, these metamorphoses that happen, although they seem on the surface potentially tragic, there is still this, strange to say, but hopefulness in that the transformation allows for an escape from the thing that Schultz was always trying to escape from in his writing, banality, received ideas, everything that's commonplace. Mm -hmm. I think what he wanted to do was always escape or return to this other magical realm. He sometimes referred to it as the age of genius, this time when everything was filled with vitality, with infinite possibility, transformations were possible, miracles were possible. There's always in his work this sense of wanting to return to some mythical origin, some metaphysical core of things. And so these changes which occurred in people, although they occurred in, in inanimate objects as well, were always something hopeful. They were moving in the right direction toward this liberation that I think he felt art and writing could allow. You also find this movability of sort of spirit, not just between people and forms, but in objects themselves. I can't think of a writer who brought objects more to life mm -hmm. than Schultz. Everything has its desire. Everything is sort of alive with potential and possibility and feeling. Yeah, the landscape is very animate in this piece, too. Obviously, you have the father's ticks inhabiting the wallpaper well, and all or of the him. fur coat, you know, where these these sort of the sounds of all these little animals who make up the fur coat are can still be heard in the fur coat. I yeah, I love that description of of, of being dispersed. Mm -hmm. That his father has been dispersed into this room where he spends so much time, his sick room, right? right? And now his expressions are in the wallpaper. His coat is alive somehow with the with the spirit of him, so that it doesn't have any of that doom um, and misery and imprisonment that you feel that the metamorphosis is really about. You have this other thing, the escape. It's, this isn't yeah. about an escape from all of that. I'm sure this is not one of Schultz's references, but the father in this, well, in all those stories, is very much like a sort of Native American trickster figure, this constant metamorphosis into other animals and uh, somehow is unkillable. Yeah, I think he is. And I think as I try to get at before, I, th I think he is the figure of the artist. I think he is what... Schultz imagined that the artist should be. And of course, he's very often thwarted. You have these really beautiful sections where he takes one of his strange experiments to a certain point. For example, I think one of the, the ones that is totally unforgettable is when he buys all of these eggs from all over Europe and Asia and Africa of all kinds of birds. And he buys these enormous brood hens from Belgium and sits them on these eggs, and suddenly these eggs start to hatch, and peacocks and vultures and every known and unknown mm -hmm. kind of bird comes out of them, and he, he lives with all these birds up in the attic. And then Adela, the servant girl, who is 
the opposing figure of the father, of the artist, Mm -hmm. who is practicality, who bears a grudge against everything that isn't commonplace, one day comes upstairs, sees this place full of bird droppings, which smells terrible, and just in this sudden act of revenge somehow against the possibility of this sort of artistic pursuit, opens the windows and all the birds are free and go out and disappear. Mm -hmm. And father is defeated. This artist is defeated by all those things in in life, which so often I think Schultz felt defeated by. Mm -hmm. There are all these flights of fantasy and there are all these amazing possibilities and, and crazy things happen, things that if you tried to describe them outside of Schultz's language sound absurd, but in his language sound perfectly natural. But then somehow or other, they, they are very often, almost always, defeated. Well, in this story, he gets his revenge on Adela by having her drown in the first paragraph. Right. And that's another strange thing, because she appears throughout, and she's such an important figure. And then so quietly in passing, she yeah. suddenly she's gone. Gone. Yeah. But but it, we don't know. I bet you, if we found those lost works, she would appear she, again. Come because back no in some death form. is final. Yeah. No death yeah. is really problematic and uncertain in Schultz's work. Why do you think in this piece the father comes back as something so repulsive to his family? I think that Schultz felt that somebody, a character like this father, who is so different, so unusual, so eccentric, was just so poorly treated by the world, um, that the world forced such a person like himself mm-hmm. into the most pitiful, awful shape. And I think that, he, that, that this was a way of describing what that world that he was ever trying to transform and renew and restore, I think he was trying to describe what it could do to a person like him, like that father. Do you think that Schultz intended this story to be a kind of metaphor for, for what we do after death for the ways in which we, we keep a dead person alive until we're able to let go? Do I'm not sure the, the, it was as straightforward as that. I mean, I don't think this is a case of a writer who was paying homage to his father. There may be a, a small element to that, but what he's doing, I think, is much bigger, mm-hmm. much more powerful, which he is taking out of a kind of the slim figure of, of a person's life just a a few bare facts and then creating this absolutely alternative universe. You've sort of addressed this in the fact that the father's a figure of an an artist, but why do you think this particular father just will not die? I mean, I don't... Or why does he die so many times? (laughs) I mean, you can look at it both ways. Right. His whole life is about dying, and at the same time, he doesn't die. I often wonder what would have come next. Was the Messiah filled with his father? Was this just this endless cycle of, you know, mm-hmm. rebirth and other forms? Or was, he, was this really the end, this story that I read just now? Mm-hmm. Was that really the last escape? And is that the last we'll ever hear of his he, father? Yeah. There's a way in which it's very hard to imagine Schultz's writing. There are stories, if we're going to separate them out from his books, that are not about the father. But that is really the heart of his work. It's very hard to imagine him writing without this character, character. returning in some form or other. The one part of the story that's vague, because everything's very specific and and vividly described, is the boiling. And why do you think we don't see that moment? We don't even actually know who puts him in the pot. You know, there's a sense that the mother's being blamed for it, but everyone's in denial about what happened at that actual moment. And you have these 
plants where the maid is throwing all of these inappropriate things into pots. You know, she's cooking gills of cotton. So I wondered if we were meant to assume that perhaps she had done this by accident. But but it's the one scene that we don't see. I think that there is this sense in which throughout all of father's long demise, the family, including the narrator, watches with sometimes amusement, sometimes sadness, sometimes tolerance, but they don't really get involved with him. He's left to be. And maybe there's some sense in which there's a guilt in that. We don't know exactly who killed him or how he, how he died. You're mm-hmm. right. It's vague. He comes out boiled and jellified. Mm-hmm. It's really grotesque. And served on a plate by the maid. And served on a plate. Um, but I think there's this, there's somehow, when I read it, I felt this slight sense of the narrator's, of course, he's blaming his mother, but his own sense of somehow having betrayed his father, having aligned himself perhaps with his mother's world, with the world of the servant girls, with mm-hmm. the world of these banalities, which his father had chosen to leave behind to escape and paid the price, endlessly paid the price mm-hmm. for for those decisions. Very, very early in sanatorium, there's this beautiful description of being with his father when he's very, very young, holding on to the, the pillars of his father's legs while his father writes letters. And then the paragraph breaks and it says, from then on, I was under my mother's care and I, and I no longer spent time with my father. So from the beginning, there's this sense of having abandoned his father, abandoned his father's side. John Updike, when he was writing about Schultz, said that Schultz's prose never, unlike that of Proust or Kafka, propels us onward, but instead seems constantly to ask that we stop and reread. Is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, his writing is so dense. And there's no real narrative to speak of. There's just atmosphere and incredible event mm-hmm. and color and fantasy. But it doesn't follow in the way that most stories and most sentences that we're used to reading follow. I think it takes time to adjust oneself to his pace, the intensity Mm-hmm. of every word mattering, every metaphor holding incredible weight and meaning. It must be quite a challenge to translate. I can only imagine, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Nicole Krause's most recent novel is Great House, which is out in paperback from W.W. W. Norton. You can subscribe to this podcast or download more than 50 previous episodes in the iTunes store. The tablet edition of the magazine with embedded fiction readings is now also on the Kindle Fire. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thank you for listening.